KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the hour, why have American feminist groups been slow to condemn rapes of Israeli women and girls by Hamas? That's the question posed by Katha Pollitt. She's an award-winning columnist for the nation. Also, they call it the parents' rights movement. We call it a culture war against public education. In the 2023 elections, it failed as a Republican strategy in swing states and in some red states. But what about 2024? Randy Weingarten has our analysis. She's president of the AFT. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. We reached him today in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, the big news today is that the Colorado Supreme Court ruled on Tuesday that Donald Trump is disqualified from serving for president again by the Constitution, and therefore he cannot appear on the presidential primary ballot in Colorado because the 14th Amendment, Section 3, prohibits anyone who engaged in insurrection from holding any office in government, state or federal. And they said Trump did engage in insurrection on January 6, 2021. Eric Foner, the historian who wrote the book on the 14th Amendment, is cited in the opinion. I know you're not a constitutional scholar, but what did you think about the ruling? Well, in general, I pretty much go along with anything Eric Foner says. But, uh, you know, the 14th Amendment, obviously, Section 3 was written in regards to uh, people who had, you know, led the uh, Confederate rebellion against the United States. But, you know, it, it, if you read it, it seems almost to anticipate the coming of someone like Donald Trump. I don't think even the people who authored the 14th Amendment, not Thaddeus Stevens or any of those folks, uh, really anticipated that it would be a president of the United States who ran afoul of the 14th Amendment, Section 3. Uh, but reality has a way of, uh, you know, surprising us nonetheless. My favorite part of the ruling, 130 pages long, the uh, Colorado court majority quoted Justice Neil Gorsuch in an election law opinion he wrote when he was a judge on the Court of Appeals for the 10th Circuit, which includes Colorado. Back then, Gorsuch wrote that, quote, a state's legitimate interest in protecting the integrity and practical functioning of the political process permits it to exclude from the ballot candidates who are constitutionally prohibited from assuming office. Close quote, Neil Gorsuch. I guess that means he will have to vote to uphold this decision when it comes before the court pretty soon. Uh, Lord only knows. But, you know, I mean, I, thinking about this, uh, this is not the only case that's going to come before the court, uh, presumably fairly soon. Uh, the federal prosecution of Donald Trump for inciting the insurrection that this special prosecutor Jack Smith has filed, uh, Trump has, you know, appealed the prosecution to the court. Uh, 
it, I, I'm trying to game this out. I mean, several things could be hitting the court at the same time or in a certain sequence. And it, it, it seems to me that if Smith is able to get the trial moving and there is a conviction of Donald Trump before uh, the November election, then the ball really goes to the court uh, and uh, see what it has to say about Trump and the 14th Amendment and Section 3. Now, they're going to have to say something about it uh, pretty much now in advance of that trial, if it does take place in a timely fashion. So that kind of prefigures, in theory, what they could then say if Trump is in fact convicted. I think we can be confident that Clarence Thomas and uh, Samuel Alito we are, are going to not interfere with Trump's political future come what may. But I think the other four Republican justices are thinking they need this like a hole in the head because yes. they probably understand, as the Colorado Supreme Court understood, that, yeah, if you read the language of the Constitution and if Trump is actually convicted of leading an insurrection, he cannot be president. So what the hell do they do then? But, you know, uh, the Republicans insisted these people go on the court and there they are. Well, it's been a big week for the 14th Amendment, Section 3. It has. Now it's time for news of the class struggle in America, a regular feature of this broadcast. Last week, Microsoft announced it would not oppose efforts by any of its 100,000 employees to form or join a union. Uh, Harold, when was the last time a major American corporation pledged it would let its employees decide freely whether to unionize? Well, I, I wrote about this at the prospect and I started thinking and I couldn't remember a time when this happened. And I've been sort of on and off the labor beat for uh, since the late 1970s. So this is really, as one of the uh, union officials that is the union Microsoft deals with, the communication workers, as one of him, one of the uh, uh, CWA officials said to me, this is, you know, this makes Microsoft a unicorn. Uh, it, it really stands out uh, from uh, the, the general morass of employer complete rejection of workers' rights to collective bargaining. Yeah, I want to try to ask you to try to explain why you think this happened. Of course, Microsoft's position is the opposite of Elon Musk, who explained recently, quote, I disagree with the idea of unions, close quote. Musk always seems to be, you know, a weirdo and a loner. But on this, I guess he's just a typical American CEO. Well, sad to say he is. I mean, he expresses himself, you know, probably more... Uh, uh, spur of the moment uh, and says what he really thinks than what CEOs say. But, you know, this has been the policy of virtually every leading American corporation that uh, wasn't unionized years ago. So it's what you hear uh, from uh, uh, Walmart and it's what you hear from Amazon. It's what you hear from Starbucks. It's what you hear from uh, REI. It's, it's just the general refrain of American CEOs. Why then? Why did Microsoft decide to be different? Well, I think there are three reasons, really. 
First, Microsoft uh, was engaged in uh, an attempt to acquire Activision, the game, you know, digital game manufacturer or distributor. And uh, the, the union that I mentioned, the communication workers, had an ongoing campaign to unionize the workers at Activision at the time. Uh, the way I heard it, they were facing, Microsoft was facing serious uh, antitrust charges that would have prohibited them from buying Activision. And when they consulted with the leading antitrust guy then on Capitol Hill, then Congressman David Cicilline, Democrat from uh, from Rhode Island, uh, he told them, well, you better uh, talk to uh, some unions if you want this to go through. So they started talking to the communication workers and said, look, uh, we know you're trying to organize the workers at Activision. We won't oppose that, uh, assuming we can buy the company. That's fine with us. And they even threw in some sweeteners, like hinting maybe this uh, pledge of union neutra- of uh, management neutrality extended beyond Activision. Um, and in return, uh, the communication workers quite reasonably said, okay, well, that being the case, we will support your bid to buy Activision uh, in any antitrust proceedings. And in fact, the uh, uh, Federal Trade Commission did look into it, but uh, eventually the deal went through. Uh, So that was the beginning. Then there's one more factor, and that is that the president of Microsoft, who's also the vice chair, Brad Smith, his father had headed AT&T in Wisconsin for decades. And AT&T has been unionized by the communication workers, by CWA, going all the way back to the 1940s. And his father never had any trouble with the union, even though the unions had struck in in other places. His father thought that CWA was a very responsible, uh, but, you know, I mean, clearly strong pro-worker union, and uh, they were always able to come to terms. And so he had a a host of, of sort of positive thoughts about about the CWA in particular, which in my regard is one of the really the one of the most strategically savvy, militant, smart American unions and the one that's sort of done the most in the not very friendly uh, sector of high tech uh, managing, you know, to, to get a number of union members, not a majority of places like Google and so on. And so uh, Brad Smith said, okay, uh, if you want to unionize other uh, Microsoft employees, of whom there are about 100,000, we will not oppose you. What a story. Meanwhile, uh, Elon Musk is running into union problems, but what's significant here is where the problems are have hit a flashpoint. Well, as I said, you know, he, when he when he expresses anti-union sentiment or rage or whatever, he's really just sort of the mouthpiece for pretty much every American CEO. But he's not in, you know, he's not in Kansas anymore. He's not in America <laughs> anymore. He's in Europe. Tesla, you know, is uh, aspires to be a global corporation. Teslas are being sold all over Europe, and uh, it, 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 they don't make any Teslas in Sweden. But there are 130 mechanics employed by Tesla in Sweden, and they've been trying to get Tesla to the bargaining table, and they've, you know, they've gotten nowhere. Now, in, you know, in the United States, that's normal operating procedure. In Sweden, 
90% of the workforce is unionized. So it really sticks out like a sore thumb. The workers went on strike. And that's just the beginning. Uh, since Musk still refuses to bargain, the uh, dock workers in not just in Sweden, but also in adjacent nations, Denmark and Norway, are refusing to deliver Teslas to Sweden. The union of Swedish postal employees are refusing to deliver Swedish license plates uh, to the <laughs> Tesla distribution facilities. Wow. And the union of uh, sanitation workers are refusing to pick up the trash uh, around the <laughs> Tesla tune-up facilities. This is a real, really a conundrum since Tesla actually dominates the sales of electric vehicles in Sweden. And their, their, their greater fear, though, is that they do have factories elsewhere in Europe, and by far the biggest one is in Germany, and there's an ongoing unionization campaign from uh, the, the biggest German union, IG Metall, uh, at, this, at that facility. It's, it's gotten more than a thousand signups already, is my understanding. And Tesla, you know, just fears that it, it, if it gives in uh, in Sweden, it will have to give in in Germany. And in the back of their minds, they know that the, here in the United States, the UAW just came off uh, a hugely successful strike with uh, Ford, GM, and Stellantis and, and wants to unionize other automakers. Stellantis. And let's mention in particular, yeah. Volkswagen has a plant in Chattanooga. BMW is in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Mercedes is in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. These are all German-based companies, and the boards of these companies have something different in Germany than they would have in the United States. Yeah, any German company that has, I, I don't know, I think it's like a five, 500 employees or so, that's a corporation, is required to have half the members of its supervisory board selected by the workers. So the board of directors effectively at German companies are evenly split between management shareholder representatives and worker representatives. Now, there, has, there was one previous effort to organize the workers at Volkswagen in Chattanooga. And for historically peculiar reason, the Volkswagen board is even more tilted to, to workers than other corporations. And the company went neutral in that campaign, which narrowly lost because every elected official in Tennessee and, you know, uh, for 300 miles around basically said it'll be the end of the world if, uh, if you go union. But Volkswagen could go neutral again. And, you know, the boards of BMW and Mercedes-Benz are also uh, composed, uh, ha halfway composed of workers. So one would hope that they, these... Uh, these companies would also go neutral and, and uh, help uh, the UAW win a real foothold in the South, which except for the big three, uh, the legacy three automakers, they, they do not have. Finally here, it's time for some concluding thoughts. Class struggle in America in 2023. Starting with Los Angeles, Roxana Tynan, the head of Lane, the Los Angeles Alliance for a New Economy, Lane was founded 30 years ago. Uh, you were there. I was there. <laughs> Roxanne Tynan says that, that after 30 years of Lane, quote, I can honestly say that I've never seen a year like this one. 
2023 was a year of daring and of workers building unprecedented power. She talked about the UTLA, the Teachers Union, SEIU 99, the WGA, the writers, SAG-AFTRA, the actors, the Teamsters, the UAW, and Unite Here, Local 11, currently striking against the hotels. Together, she concluded, by organizing and building leadership, we pushed back on corporate greed and pushed forward with community demands. I think it's hard to disagree that 2023 was a memorable year in the history of class struggle in Los Angeles. Absolutely, and memorable year in the history of class struggle in the United States. I'd say the best year for unions, at least since uh, the early 70s when public sector unionism got going, and perhaps even going back to the years around the middle of the century. What's still at issue, though, and here is where the uh, Joe Biden's NLRB is critically important, is that while we have seen very successful organizing campaigns at universities, uh, uh, TAs, RAs, uh, resident assistants, you name it, at uh, think tanks, museums, nonprofits, symphony orchestras, it's still much easier for a professional worker who is not easily replaced to join a union than it is for a sales clerk or an assembly line worker because they can be replaced and the labor law is so weak that they can be fired, which is illegal, but there's no penalty uh, if they're part of an organizing drive. Joe Biden's NLRB is moving heaven and earth to do what they can to change that. There's, there's still some things, some shoes that need to drop uh, for this to become uh, really policy, but that would certainly cap off what is the best year for labor in a very long time. Harold, thank you for a great year of reporting on class struggle in America, and thanks for talking with us today. John, it's always great to be here and looking forward to uh, next year. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Why have American feminist groups been slow to condemn rapes of Israeli women and girls by Hamas? That's the question posed by Katha Pollitt at TheNation.com. Katha, of course, is a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation. She also writes for The New York Times, The Atlantic, and The New Yorker. We reached to today at home in Manhattan. Katha, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, let's review where we are today. We're speaking on Tuesday, December 19th. Since October 7th, when Hamas killed 1,200 Israelis, almost all civilians, Israeli military forces have killed almost 20,000 Palestinians in Gaza, mostly women and children. Almost the entire population has had their homes destroyed. The Israelis have blocked shipments of food, water, and medicine and fuel. We've been arguing for an immediate ceasefire for a couple of months now. Meanwhile, 
Some American men are denying that Hamas members raped Israeli women and girls on October 7th. Who are some of the people making this claim? And what exactly are they saying? Uh, well, Max Blumenthal is one. Uh, he claimed in a tweet last week that, quote, Israel is inventing stories of mass rape on October 7th. And his colleague at the Gray, so Gray Zone news site, Aaron Maté, demanded to see, quote, purported rape victims offering direct testimony. Now, these women are dead or possibly kidnapped. And that is so much like what rape denialists always say. It's never good enough. You know, she hasn't given testimony or if she did, there's something wrong with it. It's astonishing to see this kind of denial put is put to a political purpose, which is to side with Hamas against Israel. You can totally oppose what Israel is doing, and I do. I mean, almost 20,000 people are now dead without denying that Hamas is a violent, terroristic, fundamentalist, misogynist group. Let's just spend a minute, since there has been a call for evidence that Hamas members really did rape Israeli women. There is evidence. There's a ton of evidence. And you can read all about it at Physicians for Human Rights Israel. And there are now eyewitness testimony, reports from doctors and others who saw the bodies of women who had been sexually abused. There are photographs. You have to really be in a conspiracy mindset to dismiss all that as fabricated. But your main concern is not Max Blumenthal or Aaron Maté. Your main concern is American feminist groups. Some of them have condemned rape by Hamas. You quote a statement from Planned Parenthood released on December 5th, quote, on October 7th, Hamas unleashed a brutal attack in Israel killing over 1,000 civilians, sexually assaulting women and girls, and kidnapping over 200 people, many of whom remain captive." Close quote. How does that sound to you? Well, that's very good. Um, the thing is, a lot of groups hung back. I mean, the, this horrible thing happened on October 7th. December 5th is almost two months later. And they came out after UN hearing a UN session on these these rapes so that they were there was a lot of pressure on them and then i had problems with some of the things they said well yeah let me look at some of the other groups the national organization for women on november 30th issued a press release in which the national president said quote rape must never be part of a battle plan and she condemned what she called the quote deafening silence around these widespread crimes against humanity, close quote. How does that sound to you? Well, it sounds like a deafening silence because the words Israel, Hamas, and October 7th do not appear. So this is like some vague humanistic statement um, that is not attached to any actual event. And there's worse. There are groups who haven't said anything, even vague humanitarian statements. Want to name some of those? Yeah, so where's the Women's March? Where's the National Association of Women's Studies? Where is the feminist majority? It's just very strange. I don't quite understand it.
Now, I will say some of these groups are, they're kind of slow. They're kind of, uh, I don't know that they have a whole lot of reach and energy, but how much reach and energy do you need to have to issue some kind of a statement condemning this? And you said there was a UN hearing. Who deserves credit for that? Oh, yeah. Well, this is really kind of interesting. Um, This UN session was called by Israel, and the keynote speaker was our old friend Sheryl Sandberg, who is the the bete noir of progressive feminists for her book, Lean In, and her association with Meta, formerly Facebook. But you got to give her credit. She stood up there. She gave a very powerful speech. And she was, you know, she was on the case when a lot of people were not. If we if we ask why won't they do this, you've already suggested that somehow people feel that condemning Hamas is failing to support the Palestinians. What do you say to those people? I think we have to somehow make some distinctions between the Palestinian people who are being slaughtered in the most horrible ways, and Hamas, which is a terroristic group that hasn't had an election in Gaza since they won the last election in 2006 or seven, um, And that's pretty shocking. I mean, I think there's a, a lot of pressure on people to take one side or another. And what I'm saying is you can take the side that what Israel is doing is truly atrocious. It's a war crime. It's it's just a whole bunch of atrocities that are happening and that will have tremendous, terrible repercussions on, on Israel, to say nothing of the Palestinians, for a very long time. You can say all that and still say that raping women in war and killing them is is not something that should happen. In conclusion here, I'd like you to Read the last paragraph of of your column. Uh, I say, surely there is enough horror to go around. Nationalism, tribalism, patriarchal religion, and I should add male supremacy. These are the enemies of women's liberation, safety, and flourishing, and always have been. Women are being used and abused by both sides. Hamas is flagrantly misogynistic, and Israel's current government wants to roll back women's rights as fast as it can. To see feminists overlooking violence against women because of their allegiance to either Israel or Palestine makes a mockery of feminism. Virginia Woolf wrote, as a woman, I have no country. As a woman, I want no country. As a woman, my country is the whole world. A noble thought, whatever happened to it. Katha Pollitt, reader at thenation.com. Katha, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me on the show. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about school politics in the 2023 election and in the 2024 election. For that, we turn to Randy Weingarten. She's president of the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers, with more than 1.7 million members in more than 3,000 locals nationwide. 
We reached her today in Jacksonville, Florida. Randy Weingarten, welcome to the program. It is great to be with you, John. We need to talk about American politics and about what they what they call the parents' rights movement. We call it the right-wing culture war. It failed as a Republican election strategy in 2023. But what about 2024? So my first question for you is, what is Moms for Liberty? They say they're just ordinary moms and that their group is grassroots and nonpartisan. Moms for Liberty is now going through a big existential crisis because one of its founders or the husband of one of its founders who happens to be the head of the Republican Party in Florida, so so much for nonpartisanship, is in a bunch of trouble for accusations of uh, sexual assault. And so we're going to see in the next few weeks whether Moms for Liberty is still a thing, given this is now going on. But Southern Poverty Law Center has called them an extremist group. I am sure that in some of the chapters all across America, there are moms and dads who just saw Moms for Liberty or the 1776 Project or some of these other groups. They said they saw something in there that they wanted to align with because of what was happening over the course of the last three years in America. I mean, we COVID changed so much in America. And shame on us for not recognizing that. You know, we often go immediately to the politics of how did Trump handle it or how does Biden handle it or, you know, what, you know, what is going on? Should schools have been open more quickly or not? But the bottom line is in 2019 or in 2020, you started having a pandemic the likes of which we had not had for a hundred years. And it was invisible and people didn't know what to do about it. And they didn't know how to treat it and they didn't know how to mitigate it. And so we had a mess on our hands, including a million deaths, including thousands of kids who were orphaned from March, April, May, June, and on and on and on. And so you're seeing the effects of this even today in the creation of a Moms for Liberty or other types of things because of of the anxiety that parents had about what was going on with their kids and schools being closed. So I would say that what you saw in these last elections in 2023, and I would argue we'll see it in 2024 now, is what we started seeing in 2022, which is that we started being able by January 2021 on, we started being able to have schools be centers of community again, have schools respond to loneliness and learning loss and all of this anxiety. And so that's what school teachers do. That's what the pro-public education forces do. And so not a surprise to me that parents and teachers together are real allies of each other And as time has gone on, the pro-public education forces are winning again. But this goes back to what Moms for Liberty and all these DeVos-inspired groups and others are. You saw it from what 
Rufo and DeSantis and the other dividers have said. They exploited the fear that people had during COVID and post-COVID. And for that, that's where you hear my anger. Not that that fear existed, it existed all over. But how do these groups who hate public schools and want this division, they exploited this. And it's made it harder. Teachers have had to work double and triple time, not only on the mental health issues and the loneliness issues and the learning loss issues, but literally banning books, censoring curriculum, toxifying terms like CRT, like making trans kids bad. All of this was an exacerbation of the anxiety and fear. And what I think the 2023 election showed us is that things are turning around again. I understand the AFT tracked something like 250 races that state, local, and school board elections where right-wing candidates campaigned on their school issues. How many of the AFT candidates won? About 80%. 80%. Yeah. And what, what you saw, John, was the PTAs don't get involved in elections. They don't get involved. So you saw lots of new groups crop up. Uh, Moms Rising, Campaign for Our Shared Future, Red, Wine, and Blue, and lots of other groups pop up. And those groups and teacher groups, NEA, ourselves, others, working together to support the pro-public education, pro-kid, pro-family, pro-humanity candidates. And 80% of them won. I looked at the list of where the victories were, They were, of course, in a lot of blue states, but not just the blue states. Iowa was a big state for liberal candidates running for school board. Ohio, generally thought of as a red state. Why do you think people who vote for Republicans, for governor and senator, did not vote for the Republican-endorsed candidates in school board races? I think it's because we have to focus on the values as opposed to the labels. And when people start focusing on the values, how are we gonna help your kid have a good education, have opportunity? How are we gonna get, deal with the social media companies and the fixation on a device instead of the fixation on relationships? How are we gonna make school fun? How are we gonna make it engaging? How are we gonna meet the needs of your kids? That's not a Republican issue or a Democratic issue, or it shouldn't be. But what has happened over the course of the last few years, and DeVos is a perfect example of it, that division and smear and calling people names and trying to actually defund public education, that's become the Republican playbook. I mean, look at what's now happened in Texas. Four times Governor Abbott has tried to create vouchers in Texas, four times in the last year, four special sessions. And they have, Republicans have the majorities in the, in the legislature, but rural Republicans combined with urban Democrats said, no, we need our public schools. 
And so what's happened is that just like on so many other issues, the MAGA Republicans, the extremists that are housed in the Republican Party, they don't really represent parents on the ground. And if you can make this, if you can focus on the values and the needs, not the labels, then pro-public education people win. Republican strategists have noticed how poorly their school board candidates uh, did in 2023. And there's talk among Republican strategists that those defeats suggest the candidates that they're running in 2024 should not focus on wokeism, but make it more about charter schools on parents' rights. Uh, and several Republican candidates uh, are planning to do that in 2024. I understand there's a bill in Congress, the Educational Choice for Children Act, that has more than 140 Republican co-sponsors in the House and Senate that would provide $10 billion in tax credits. What do you think is going to happen to school choice, as they call it, charter schools as an issue in 2024? Is it going to be as big as it seems it will be right now? Look, notice what's going on here. As opposed to simply trying to invest in the public schools that 90% of kids go to, they're constantly trying to undermine them. And that in and of itself is the problem. Public schools are not Democratic or Republican. They're not conservative or liberal. They are about opportunity and frankly, I would argue pluralism. They are a foundation stone to our democracy and they are absolutely imperative for students' opportunity. I was just in Jacksonville the last couple of days and in other rural, basically conservative areas around Jacksonville that routinely vote for Republicans. So when you go into classrooms, and you're trying to help kids be excited about career tech ed, about experiential learning, about hands-on learning, about working with each other, about reading books. This is what Congress should be helping us do. And instead, it's not that bill that is, that bill may have a hundred some odd signatures, but the thing that was most antithetical to me is that they're also trying to cut Title I, the, the most important funding for poor kids in rural areas and in urban areas. They're trying to make an 80% cut to the funding that goes into public schools for poor kids. I'm constantly shocked that instead of actually helping the 90% of kids that go to public schools, many of whom are Republican, they want to keep on taking money out and keep on smearing us instead of helping us help all the kids in America. Last question. <laughs> the Republican slogan here is parents' rights. What about the idea of parents' rights? What kind of rights do you think parents have when it comes to their own kids' education? So let me tell you a secret that's going to go to this podcast for all the folks who, who listen to your podcast. We all need parents' rights. I mean, it's any teacher will tell you. 
our most important partner, our parents. We want parents to be involved in schools. We need them to be involved in schools. How many times when I taught did I have a contract with my high school kids and I wanted them to bring it home, not just them sign it, but have their parents sign it so that parents knew what I was teaching and they were part of my teaching. We need that. How many times have we begged parents to be a parent teacher night? We need that. We need parents to be our partners. And, and so this is just, it's, it's again, the constant attempt to smear and to divide instead of to solve. We want parents to be involved in schools. We need that to happen. But the other thing I would say is this, for every time that one of these groups, you know, take Florida, for example, 60% of the book banning were done by 11 people, mm. 60%. So every time they attempt to ban a book, what about all those other parents and kids that want a book to be there? So they're taking away other people's freedom. So for the party that says they believe in freedom, why don't you believe in everybody's freedom? Randy Weingarten is president of the American Federation of Teachers. Randy, thank you for all your work and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, John. And now from the archives, an episode recorded in March 2000. Arthur Danto, art critic for The Nation magazine, has just been nominated for the National Magazine Award for Criticism for his essay on visiting Las Vegas, not to gamble, but to look at the art. I talked to Arthur Danto last year when his cover story first was published. I opened our conversation by remarking that a local reporter had asked whether the paintings now on display in Las Vegas at the Bellagio Gallery of Fine Art were real. This turns out to be an interesting question. It is interesting that people worry about it. Uh, I, I think that uh, there are people who go into the gallery there, I was told by the curator, and ask in a curious way, well, are these real? Uh, maybe they just don't expect that they should be real or anything like that, but, um, but it, it, it's something that, that happens, I think, when you're at, in La Las Vegas. Everything is so unreal that it's an easy inference that the paintings have to be uh, something, something other than real. But well, remind a lot of people... Remind us, about, remind us about what is unreal about Las Vegas. What's unreal about Las Vegas is everything except art. <laughs> uh, that is to say, what's at the Bellagio for the most part. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, an, it's an interesting culture. It, it's an astonishing culture. It's a, a lot of fun. Uh, and if, you want, uh, if, you, if you're not there as a s sort of serious looker at, at paintings, you can have a wonderful time. But what's happened is bringing these extraordinary paintings uh, to Las Vegas has created excitement of a kind that you can't imagine anything else creating. And that, 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 that to me, is a, an amazing fact. I mean, and Steve Wynn's other hotel out there called the Mirage. They've got Siberian tigers. You can see them. They've got a tank full of sharks. You can see that and so forth. But there's probably no animal act that they can bring in and uh, 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 justify it by saying, well, this is an endangered species. Nothing you can think of at this point would be like 
whatever it is, 19 paintings, 26 paintings. I don't know just exactly how many how many uh, are are in that in that collection, a- and uh, that that uh, ignites uh, such interest in everybody. When I said I was going to Las Vegas, everybody said, well, you're going to see the Bellagio, you're going to see the paintings, is that why you're going? And it, it very quickly, it seems to me, has entered national consciousness in a way in which none of the large uh, casino ho- hotels have done. So Steve Wynn was right that there is that interest in, in great art. So what are we to make of the fact that some casinos display tigers and sharks and uh, others display Play Van Gogh and Cezanne. Is this a good thing? Is this uh, uh, a bad well, I, thing? No, well, I wouldn't think it was a bad thing. I think <laughs> it's a great thing. Uh, but uh, I think the difference is that when is somebody set apart as uh, as as Peter as well a colleague here at the Nation said he's like. Donald Trump with taste, <laughs> and it's that that idea that uh, he really is a, a person who's who's passionate about classical modernism, you might you might say, and uh, who has uh, figured he was going to get the best advisors he he could could find, but that whether he w- made money or not on this, it was something he was going to try. The hope was that he would make money by attracting a different clientele than uh, has been coming to Las, Las Vegas for a very long time, or maybe forever. You write that, a- and you, you, you write that uh, Las Vegas has become an art destination. I know that uh, here in Los Angeles, the Museum of Contemporary Art uh, sent a tour group uh, to the yes. Bellagio exhibit, and it was oversubscribed. Yeah, well, that's the the thing. I've talked to a lot of people from museums here in New York, and uh, they all say, what a great idea. (laughs) And they're all planning trips to Las Vegas. So in a funny kind of way, Wynne may have gotten something that he hadn't counted on. I think he might have been hoping that you'd find high rollers with taste, but uh, that that may not be what happens. But it doesn't take a lot to support an act in Las Vegas. Somebody told me that the biggest money makers out there are the five cent, the nickel slots, mm-hmm. and the MGM, which is the largest hotel in the world until about three weeks ago, paid for itself out of nickel slots in four months. Gee. So I I don't know what happens with uh, I don't know what's going to happen with the art collection from that that point of view. But uh, Steve Wynn's paintings are for sale, aren't they? They're all for sale, and I've not gotten to the bottom of that. But from what I understand, he gets a tax break by running a bona fide art gallery, and to run a bona fide art gallery means that everything has to be for sale. And it, it, I think that he probably has a very I have to say, limited sense of how scarce paintings are, <laughs> because he he did sell one of the most magnificent Franz Kleins. Uh, I mean, to have gotten a, a a painting like that by by you can see it uh, on uh, in in my story uh, up at the head. You there's a shot of the gallery, and you can see Franz Kleins uh, painting hang on the wall. It's gone. <laughs> there was a, a bloody <clears throat> weekend, I guess, in which they sold the Klein, they sold their Giacometti, they sold Mademoiselle Pogani by Brancusi, and there were one other. Heartbreak. <laughs> it is heartbreak. <laughs> and I think he'll have to find some way around that. Although I th- there are certain things to which he's deeply attached, 
and which uh, he's he's not selling. However, he can justify that with whatever the tax authorities there are. I'll just tell you what what it Please. is. He really ad- adores a, por- a portrait by of Do- Dora Maar by by Picasso, and uh, he, he it was the last painting Picasso did of Dora Maar. It's a great painting, and. Uh, However many Picassos you've seen, it's worth the trip just to see it. Arthur Danto, thank you very much for joining us for your report on the uh, art scene in Las Vegas. Arthur Danto is art critic for The Nation magazine. And Arthur Danto has just been nominated for the National Magazine Award for Criticism for his essay on visiting Las Vegas. We spoke with Arthur Danto in March 2000. He died in 2013. it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA.